be able to sing together and to praise the God that we have been studying about. And uh, I think it'd be uh, good for us to have a word of prayer uh, before we uh, begin. We have certainly looked a lot in this book at Babylon and at things that are related to Israel going to be in captivity in Babylon, but from time to time, Isaiah goes back to talk about the reality that he faced in the pre-exilic days. It was not a pretty picture in Judah. As he had said very much in the first several chapters of the book, he, he comes back and, and talks again about some of the things that really characterize God's people at this very moment that Isaiah was writing. So chapter 48, would somebody read 1 to 11? Hear them out, Jacob, were called by the name of Israel, and came from the waters of Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord, and confessed the God of Israel, but not in truth or right. They call themselves after the holy city, and say themselves on the God of Israel, the Lord of hosts is his name. The former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth, and I announced them. When something I did them, they came to pass. Because I know that you are obstinate, and your neck is an iron sinew, and your forehead brass. I declared them to you from old. Before they came to pass, I announced them to you. Lest you should say, My idol did them, or my carved image and my metal image commanded them. You have heard, and now all this. And will you you now not declare it? From this time forth, I announce to you new things, hidden things that you have not known. They are created now, not long ago. Before today, you have never heard of them. Lest you should say, Behold, I knew them. You have never heard, you have never known. From of old, your ear has not been opened. For I know that you would surely deal with treasures me, and that from before birth you were called a rebel. For, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain from you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. But for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. Uh, for how should my name be profane? My glory I will not be pronounced. Look at some of the sins that Isaiah is condemning uh, his people for. Really, God is. Um, in verse 1, can you see what they were doing wrong? nice to have a God of your own. 
You know, it gives you identity. It makes you feel good. But it's just sort of a, a luxury. It's not a de- dedication. It's not that, that they're really uh, seeking the Lord. It's just that they are, you know, uh, they, 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 want to, they want to be able to say they've got a God and that they're worshiping. That's kind of the way Israel was here. Um, they, they, they were not really committed to God. They just wanted to talk about how he was their God and they were his people. Thoughts about that? Say it. I think a lot of the way that I see, especially some of my friends in the world, they want to say they have a God, but yet they don't want to do the actions and pay the cost that it takes to have the God that they so, if you even say that they desire. It's just, it's, it's wanting the, I think we said this earlier in the study of yesterday, this morning, that it's wanting the benefits of the world that make the world begin. Yes, exactly. It's easy to view God that way. That wasn't the only problem that they had. In verse 3, God had declared the former things and then brought them to pass because, verse 4, I know that you are obstinate. You are hard-headed and stubborn. And it's hard to get anything through your thick head. So I, I did all these prophecies to show that I'm in control of the course of history. Because I knew you wouldn't listen any other way. So these people are hypocrites. They're hard-headed. Verse 5, I also declared them to you long ago, before they took place, to avoid you saying what? <coughs> yeah. So that you guys wouldn't say, oh, it was my idol that did this. <laughs> Can you imagine? They were so steeped in idolatry that if they had half a chance, they would have given credit to the idols for doing the things instead of the Lord. And so he's, he's going to, uh, uh, you know, do this, predict the future in such a way that they couldn't do that. He was going to, to clearly proclaim the things. He wasn't going to do it in such a way that they would have a chance to give the credit to the idols. He also says, look at verse uh, 8. You have not heard, you have not known, even from long ago your ear has not been opened because I knew that you would deal very treacherously. You have been called a rebel from birth. There were times when it appears that God kept the information about the future secret until the last possible minute because he didn't want to give Israel too much information for fear they'd abuse it. They were so rebellious that if he had told Israel ahead of time everything he was going to do, they wouldn't have trusted in him. They would have just taken it for granted and gone on. So all through this, you see the picture of people who are just rebellious, hard-headed, self-willed, hypocritical. That's what Isaiah's preaching to. That's the kind of people that God's people had become. Comments and questions through verse 8. Do we have any examples of when they had heard that they had maligned it or whatever? Nothing comes to mind. God was pretty much trying to avoid that they do that. He had 
restrained his wrath. He really needed to, because what would have happened if God had really given the Jewish nation the kind of punishment they deserved? That would have been the end of that. I mean, really, he says, I, I refined you, but not as silver. Now, you know, silver has to pass through the fire, be smelted, I guess. I'm not sure if that's the right term for silver or not. But you're trying to draw off the dross to leave pure silver. Well, what would have happened if God had actually refined Israel like they were silver? It would have been all dross. Yeah. There would have been nothing left. Try to separate off the impurities to leave the silver behind. There would have been nothing left behind. So God had to restrain his anger so that he didn't just annihilate them as they would have deserved. And why did God do that in verse 11? Yeah. Certainly not because they deserved this kind of uh, generous, gracious treatment, but because he didn't want uh, to people to, to look down on him and uh, didn't want to dirty his own reputation. Uh, because the people knew they were his people by not being able to protect them and, and, and provide a future for them. Comments and questions through verse 11. Great. Um, I'm just a little confused by uh, in verse 5 through 8. In verse 5 it says, even from the beginning I have declared it to you. And then down in verse 7 um, says, they are created now and not from the beginning and before this day you have not heard them lest you say, of course I knew them. I am a little confused what point he's making in each of those. And how well, I think God varied his treatment depending on the situation. And there were times that God clearly declared some things in advance so that it was clear that God had really predicted the future. There were other times that he realized he shouldn't say anything in advance because then they would abuse that information and that knowledge. So I think God did both depending on the situation. How exactly would they abuse that? Well, perhaps they would abuse it by then not feeling like they needed to depend on God because they already knew what would happen. Perhaps if it was a gracious purpose, they would have abused the grace and viewed it as sort of a license to then do whatever they wanted to. That kind of thing. Now, this thing they come to mind about, like, kind of like an example of him, like, waiting to the last minute to say something. Can you think of anything that would kind of be similar to that? I don't know about that. I don't really talk about that. It wasn't like 185,000, where, I mean, just before Danny told us, those are the kind of people that really know. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. Good, good application. All right, other thoughts? 12 to 16. Yes, I have brought him in his way. I will prosper. 
communion with Jesus. I have not spoken in secret when I did. From the time that I was there, I was there. And now the Lord God and the Spirit has sent me. Okay. As he often does with Israel, he starts the section by asking them to do what? <coughs> Does that uh, imply anything? They haven't been. Probably that they uh, aren't doing that very well. Remind you of what you'd say to a little kid. You know, now listen. And gym teachers that would say, listen up. You know, and they had to do that because people wouldn't do it otherwise. So he's like, listen guys. You know, I am he. I'm the first. I'm also the last. I made the earth. I spread out the heavens. Consider who I am. And who among you has ever been able to make predictions like this? The Lord loves him, verse 14. He will carry out his good pleasure on Babylon. And his arm will be against the Chaldeans. Who is the him the Lord loves? Cyrus. The Lord actually loves Cyrus. And through him he's going to destroy Babylon. God is the one who determines what's going to happen. I, even I have spoken, I have called him, I have brought him, he will make his way successful. God is the one who calls, the one who, who gives the power and success to Cyrus. I mean, in all of this, what Cyrus does in conquering Babylon and conquering the world is just a demonstration of how God is able to determine history. I mean, you wouldn't read a, a history of the ancient Near East and not read about Cyrus and the Persian Empire conquering Babylon. That's a very important fact of history of that time period, that, that section of the world. And yet, when we look at it, God is the one who orchestrated all of this and who said ahead of time that he would do it. So that proves that God is the one who's behind Cyrus' work. He says, come near to me, listen to this. From the first I have not spoken in secret. God had said already up front, ahead of time, that this is what he did. So you can trust that God is God because he's able to superintend history to make his purposes transpire. Comments or questions? Jim. What's the reason that people from Babylon are called Chaldeans and not Babylonians? Yeah, but I can't tell you that. I think Chaldean may be the more general racial term and Babylonian more than the nation, national term. I think I'm right on that, but can anybody confirm that or deny it? It's something like that. Yeah. In these past passages, uh, and all throughout the time we've been studying Isaiah, um, we've been affirmed and assured of God's greatness and His glory. And yet still, He has to plead with His children to listen to Him. I think there's so many different uh, examples in, in the Old Testament. Uh, I think of King Nebuchadnezzar, when he saw that hand writing on the wall, he was so Belshazzar. worried. Yeah, Belshazzar, that's right. He was so worried, you know, because he wanted to know what this you know, great super being was trying to get across to him because of this great miraculous sign. And yet, still, these children of Israel, after, after seeing all these great things, I mean, parts, just all these miracles, 
God still not be pleading for them, they still listen to That is a shame, isn't it? I mean, and he still keeps hammering who he was. After all this time, they're still not acting like they understand who he is. And I wonder how often God would say the same thing to us. I mean, how many times would it be very appropriate for God to say, Look, I'm the first, I'm the last, I created the earth, I stretch out the heavens, I give you life, listen to me, submit to me, honor me. I mean, if he is this that he claims to be, wow, what should that mean for us? Think about how many times Christ had to say it to the people that were following him. You know, my kingdom's not on this world, my kingdom's not on this world. Uh, But won't listen. Now we're supposed to be the bride of Christ. Uh, But and then just like the the Israelites of old, every time we sin, it's like we're committing adultery against God. But yet He keeps saying, "Come back to me, come back to me, come back to me." Just think about the the grief that we cause God. And and one of one of the songs I really liked is the song, "Is it for me, dear Savior?" And uh, the last verse of it, it says, uh, I'll be with thee forever and never grieve thee more. Dear Savior, I must praise thee and, and live forevermore. I mean, just think about the grief that we cause God and then how that should end when we decide to become Christians and live the right way. If we're his people, we certainly ought to respect who he is. Other thoughts? 17 to uh, 22. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God, who teaches you to profit, who leads you in the way you should go. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like the sand, and your descendants like its graves. Your name would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it. Send it to the ends of the earth. Say, The Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them to the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. He spilled the rock, split the rock, and the water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Okay. Now in 17, what had God done for his people? Redeemed them and taught them. He had taught them for what purpose? Yes, why did he want them to go in that way? To benefit them. Do you realize that about God's teaching and God's message? That it's a message to benefit his people. He said that over and over again in Deuteronomy, that he's commanding these things for their good. Sometimes people think that God's words are a drag. God's just trying to be mean to us and restrict us, deprive us of our fun or whatever. Not all that. God actually was teaching them 
for their well-being, for their profit, to be a benefit and blessing to them. And, and he cries out in verse 18, if only you had paid attention to my commandments. Can you imagine how it would feel to be God? And you go to all the trouble to reveal your word, and then these people ignore it. You know, have you ever done that with your children? You give them very detailed, careful instructions, only to find men completely not paying a bit of attention to anything you said. It's like, why did I bother saying it? If you weren't going to listen. The Lord is saying, you know, if only you'd paid attention. Now, God will say things like that. A lot of times, Deuteronomy 5.29, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always. And Jesus Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. And a number of other passages where God laments the fact that he wanted to bless them, but they wouldn't let him. Um, that their conduct didn't allow. But if they'd have paid attention, what would they have been like? So what's he going to do? 
He'll redeem them and provide for them as they come out of Babylon. God is, is so merciful. Look, he puts up with so much in an intense effort to find some way to be able to bless his people. Isn't that amazing? Would you bless a people like this if you were God? They don't deserve it. They don't. That means what God gives us is not what we deserve. His grace is unmerited. You know, in these scriptures, and when we look at the, the prophets, we really like to pick on the Israelites a lot. But the thing that I've noticed the more and more I say these things is the things that we're doing as well. I mean, it's we do it in different forms, but we still do it. I mean, just like we looked at in the last chapter, they're just worshiping God with words. We do the same thing whenever we worship God without our heartbeat, and we just consider being Christian. Services with idolatry, we put money and careers and sports and all those things in front of God. And I think we need to look at these things and see where we can be corrected because the Israelites were correct and we can't be. Certainly. Rigor. So I just had a train of thought because I'm discussing Calvinism with, with another guy. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, I guess, undefeatable grace would not be the same thing as irresistible grace, because there are a lot of people that didn't even go for it in that long. I guess Jews that chose just to stay there instead of going back and having that blessing. Yeah, I would agree with that. God's grace has often been resisted. It's never been defeated in the way I would look at that. But yes, that's right. And even here, in this context where he has surprisingly introduced God's redemption for undeserving people, he makes it clear in verse 22, this is not indiscriminate. There is no peace for the wicked. The wicked in the end will have to be punished. There, there is no way to provide them with peace. Interestingly, this last section of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, that's 27 chapters. I know it just seems like 26, but you have to count both ends when you're doing something like that. It was 27 chapters. That means there's three sections of nine chapters. Um, and at the end of each nine chapters, the end of 48, there is no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. At the end of 57, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And at the end of 66, then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. In other words, there is no peace for the wicked. So at the end of each nine-chapter section, from 40 to 66, there is essentially the statement that the wicked do not have peace. Not all Israel are uh, not all are Israel that are descended from Israel. The wicked part of Israel is no longer God's people and no longer receives it. Alright, comments or questions on chapter 48? Yeah. On the, on the first 21, it's about the split rock that the water catches for. Yes. Is this prophetic in any way to use Christ because he was the body was broken and after that um, redemption was given to all? Is that at all stretching it a bit or what? Yeah, it's stretching a bit to me. 
Uh, I would rather just see a reference back to the exodus providing water out of the rock. But some of those things are things where I hesitate to say it could be some kind of a secondary reference to that. Obviously, the rock that followed them was Christ in 1 Corinthians 10. But I still think, certainly at least, the main thought is he's providing the provisions they need as they leave from that. Other thoughts? John? In verse 16 at the end, who is God sending along with his spirit? That's a good question, and I don't know the answer to that. Um, it could be Isaiah. It could be the servant. I think those are the two best options, uh, but I'm not sure. It's a very debated question. Other questions? 